pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for your church and for making us a part of it, for making us a part of this family. So help us, Lord, to be diligent in our calling, to not grow weary in well-doing, but to press on and to uh, uh, be mindful of your work in our lives, in our families, in our church, and use us in this community to represent Christ well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to challenge you tonight with something, um, and um, I have been convicted about a matter in regard to our church because it's become apparent that our church membership has certain deficits when it comes to the knowledge of basic church doctrine. This is true for many adults, and it is also true for our children. When we bring up basic biblical doctrines and people either haven't heard of them or they're not sure what to say about them or they don't know what they believe about them or can't defend them, that indicates a problem. We cannot possibly pass on the faith uh, that we recite every Sunday, for example, in the Nicene Creed if we don't know it, if we don't understand it ourselves. And so doctrine matters. I want to just begin tonight by looking at uh, just reading some scripture verses to, that emphasize this. First Timothy, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. So Paul is writing to Timothy, who's a pastor, and he is uh, admonishing him to be diligent in this work of teaching others and of being careful uh, in, in regard to the doctrine that he's been given. And I think what happens is sometimes I'm not careful. Sometimes you're not careful or diligent in these matters. We kind of have a vague or general approach to it and think that's good enough. But over and over in the Scripture, we see a call to something more precise. Second Timothy 2.2 2, and. The things that you have heard from me, Paul says again to Timothy, uh, you've heard them among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will then be able to teach others. And so that's the job of the pastor, is to teach you so that you can teach others. So you either perhaps are parents, or you will be parents, or you have friends, or others that you influence, and so it's important that you have sound doctrine, so that you are in a position to teach others. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing or rightly handling the word of truth. That's doctrine. Doctrine just means teaching. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, you know, for all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, literally God-breathed, and is profitable for what? For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be mature or complete or perfect, thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, without sound doctrine, you're not going to be equipped, I'm not going to be equipped for the good works that God has called us to. Acts 2.42, and they continued steadfastly, the early church, in what? In the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread 
and in prayers. Doctrine was central. Doctrine is the faith that gets passed on generation after generation after generation. And we certainly look at church history and we see periods of time where where that has not been done or not been done well and the church has become corrupt or drifted off away from its foundations. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 16, And he, Jesus, gave some to be apostles and prophets, that's the Bible, and some evangelists, missionaries, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect or a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we're no longer children. And this is the problem, frankly. A lot of times we're just little children, and we're tossed by every wind of doctrine. Everything comes along in the pop culture, everything that comes our way. I don't see anything wrong with that. And it's gotten absurd to the point that many Christians, many people who've grown up in the church, can't see anything wrong with homosexuality or with any number of other things in our culture. They can't see anything wrong because they don't have the ability to understand what the standard is by which to measure those things. They don't see anything wrong with how their kids are being raised because they don't perceive what the Bible says about raising children. They don't see anything wrong with their marriages because they don't know what the Bible says about that either. And we could go down pretty much a list of everything. And at every point where there's a doctrinal deficit, there's a life deficit. Deficit in our family, deficit in our church, deficit in our culture. So that we're no longer children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body in edifying itself in love. And so doctrine is critical to that. We can't just set doctrine over here as, well, that's for people who are theology wonks or people who like that sort of thing. This is not optional. This is for every single Christian. We should know our Bibles. We should know what's taught in our Bibles. And so the author of Hebrews writes to the Hebrews, and he says in a rebuke, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, and I'll say that to you, some of you ought to be teachers of the Bible, not just me. I'm pausing so that can soak in a little bit. By this time, you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the first principles, the ABCs of the oracles of God. And you have become, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Look, if you're a baby, I want you to want milk. In fact, Peter says, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word. So if you're a newborn baby, great. But if you're a grown-up and you're still longing for milk, there's something terribly wrong. But solid food 
belongs to those who are of full age. There's that idea of maturity again. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised, the Greek word there is where we get our word gymnasium, to discern both good and evil. We live at a time where people cannot tell the difference between good and evil because they don't know doctrine. They don't know what the Bible teaches. They don't know God's standard. Well, it seems okay to me. That's not the standard, whether it seems okay to you or not. Your thoughts are not his thoughts. Your job is to make his thoughts your thoughts, and that's why we need to know doctrine. Now, in the past, our congregation, some years ago, and other congregations I have pastored have learned the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It takes some work, but then again, so does everything worth doing. Hebrews 12:11 Now no discipline seems to be joyful for the present but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If we were to take if we if you were to take one college course, it would take some work to to learn that. How was that, Emily, for A&P last summer? Did it take a little work? Do you know more now than you did when you started? Good. And I'm, I'm sure the room's full of people who've taken classes uh, in various forms, and you come away saying, that was hard, but it was worth it. I learned some things that are valuable. And so my question is, or I should say I'm fearful as a pastor, that not many of us are working at learning the basic tenets of our faith. As your pastor, I am convinced that I have been neglecting this essential task, and I want to try to remedy it, if I can. You know this passage, very familiar, but listen again, because it's also very convicting. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God, how much? With all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength. Sounds like it's going to take some work, right? And these words, there's doctrine, which I command you today, shall be in your heart. Not on a shelf, in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall... Bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. The Word of God, doctrine, is to permeate you first so that it can then be passed on and permeate your children. And I mean permeate, and it's to permeate your house. That's the image. You can't escape it. It's over the door. It's on the doorpost. It's when you sit down, rise up, take a walk, go for a ride. It's ever-present. Does that describe your house? The catechism is one means of doing this. I'm going to teach a series of lessons on Wednesday nights on why we should and how we should learn the catechism. And by the way, we can order you some hard copies or you can just get 
the app, which I got on my phone today for the Shorter Catechism. It's free, so you have it right there in your hand. You're never without your phone, right? So you can never, you'll never be without the Shorter Catechism. It's right there. Just take them one question at a time with the answers. Get it on your iPad. Get it on your computer. If you want hard copies, let me know. We'll get you a book. We'll get you cards. Whatever you need, I'm challenging you as families, as individuals, every single one of you tonight to join in this effort. I would like for fathers to take the lead in your home by example and by insistence. By example, it means you do it, and insistence, meaning you see to it that everybody else does it. I'm starting with a goal of two questions per week, memorized, answers, questions and answers. That'll be fairly easy at first. Uh, some of the questions get a little longer. We might, when we get to some of those, we may slow that pace down a bit. But if we were to do two questions a week, we could do this project in slightly over a year on Wednesday nights. Now, I want to emphasize, I'm not going to be teaching on this all year. I am going to be teaching on it for a few weeks because there's a lot to be said about it. Uh, and we'll remind each other, but we are going to take some time and maybe we'll break up into small groups and say our questions as, the, uh, as we like to put it, to answer the questions. And I'm going to go ahead and mention something. I want to speak to the problems of quitting. Here's the temptation. See, I'm not really, I'm not asking you to raise your hand. I'm, I'm in a way, uh, I don't do this too often. I'm telling you we're going to do this. I'm telling you you're going to do this. Like it or not. So you may as well like it. Um, and what's going to happen is you're going to have a week where you don't do it. And then you say, well, we're not going to go to church tonight because I didn't do my questions and you'll stay home because you don't want to be embarrassed. I'm going to challenge you right now that when you're embarrassed, come and be embarrassed. It won't be that embarrassing because I suspect you'll have some others here who have the same kind of thing, and we're very forgiving people, very gracious. Use your embarrassment as a motive to do what's right, not to do what's wrong, not to run hide, not to quit, but to say, you know what, I need to work harder this week. It's okay. At some point, we're not all going to be at the same place. That's okay. We're going to come here and maybe somebody knows questions 1 through 12 and you only know questions 1 through 6. Well, then say the ones you know and work on number 7 for next week. That's okay. This is not legalistic. This isn't about judging you. It is about helping you and me do a better job than we've been doing. We can do that. If the, if the shorter catechism is too hard for you, we have a children's catechism. Which, by the way, the shorter catechism was written for children, but that was too hard for some. And so there is a young, young a children catechism for young children, for little kids. Everybody can learn the first question of that one. Who made you? Very good. Okay. Why did he make you? For his own glory. See, so you can learn so even the little kids are going to take on the younger children's catechism. 
And if, if I was really being mean to you tonight, I'd, I'd tell you, and we're going to read this at some point, to understand that the, larger catechi- the, the shorter catechism of the Westminster Confession was written for those, and I quote, for those of lesser mind. So when you're tempted to find it hard, just remember that. And uh, you have enough pride that you don't want to be thought of as just having a lesser mind. And uh, maybe some will want to go on and work on the larger catechism. Uh, So that's the introduction. Now, what I'm going to start tonight, probably not going to get very far for the sake of time. uh, There's a series of three articles that I want to essentially read or just give them to you because, number one, they're excellent and there's no point in me trying to redo what's already excellent. And, and two, to show you that this isn't something new that I just came up with because I couldn't think of what to do on Wednesday nights. Um, this is a long-standing practice of the church. So we're going to look at a bit of the history of catechizing and as well as some of the reasons it should be done, as well as some of the methods. So let me just say right up front, what, what I want you to do is go online or whatever, get the first two questions and start working on those. Let me tell you, a great way to do that is either have it on your phone or someplace or put it on a card, have it with you. The first, you know, what is man's chief end is the first question. We're doing the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Okay, so day one, tomorrow, just work on being able to say that. Look at your card however many times. You know what? I promise you this can be done in, on average, way less than five minutes a day. I think probably, I'm going to guess the average is going to be two minutes. You can tell me next week when you come back. Kind of keep up with how long it takes you. And then, so what you do is first day you have the card, second day you have the card. Maybe, if you still need it, it's always in your pocket or your purse or on your phone. You can always look at it, you forget. But this is important, word perfect. No, no, no paraphrasing, don't get close, word perfect. They deliberated over every word that's in there to be careful, because that's what we're called to do is to be careful. Now you remember the catechism is not Scripture, but it is about Scripture. And in fact, many of the versions that you'll get have Scripture references. Everything in the catechism is rooted in Scripture. It's taking what the Bible says and putting it into a statement. And you think about what you have when somebody asks the question, what is God? If you haven't learned the catechism answer to that, you're going to stumble around. But if you can say God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, You've got something in a sentence. You've got something grand in a sentence. And so that's what we're going to work toward. Professor John Murray, uh, who uh, was a professor at Westminster Seminary, he uh, wrote an article called Catechizing a Forgotten Practice. And so I just want to go through uh, for the next oh, ten minutes or so here, a bit of this, and we'll just stop arbitrarily. We're not going to get through all of this this evening. But I do want to introduce this to you. 
He says it is surely an indictment of the church today that in dealing with the subject of catechizing, we have to begin by explaining the very meaning of the term. What was looked at as necessary and beneficial and benefit as a necessary and beneficial practice by the early church and by the reformers has now fallen into such disuse among Christian people that very few seem to have any understanding or appreciation of the subject. And yet we believe it, it is to the discontinuance of this practice that we can trace much of the doctrinal ignorance, confusion, and instability so characteristic of modern Christianity. The term catechizing is derived from the Greek word, word catechine, which means to sound over or through, to instruct. In the New Testament, this word is used seven times, and in each instance refers to an oral instruction in a religious matter, in, in religious matters. For example, Luke, in addressing his gospel to the most excellent Theophilus, expresses his purpose thus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed, or as it can literally be translated, orally instructed. The teaching of our Lord and the apostles was of necessity oral and partly interlocutory, and in the early church, the converted Jews and heathen who received instruction in the rudiments of Christianity with a view to being admitted to membership were known as catechumens. Thus, what is meant by catechizing is instruction in the Christian faith by means of question and answer. Catechizing, or interlocutory teaching, was regarded as indispensable in the early church. It is true that the early catechisms were not constructed on the method of question and answer, but usually consisted of manuals of doctrine or brief creeds. These, however, were used as the basis for catechizing. Recent research has suggested that there is common catechetical material in several New Testament epistles. There is no mention in the New Testament of a catechist as a separate office or order, that is, someone who teaches the catechism, but it would seem that the catechumate uh, developed, uh, as it developed, this became full-time work. In the writings of the second century, we find mention of catechumens and catechists and by the 4th and 5th century, we see that catechetics began to develop its scientific theory. One of his chief exponents was Augustine. And in his Catechizing of the Uninstructed, that's a paper he wrote, he details the several steps in the process of wise catechizing. It is clear from the writings of the early fathers that they attached great importance to the interlocutory method of instruction. Interlocutory means questions and answers, asking questions and getting a response. They were not unmindful of the great commission given by the Lord to disciple all nations, teaching them all things that he had commanded. As the church grew in worldly prominence and lost in spiritual life, changes came in the method of its training work. 
As its ritual services were expanded, so its teaching exercises were diminished. As the ecclesiastical spirit overcame the evangelical church, catechetical instruction declined. It stands out clearly in the history of the dark Middle Ages that where this kind of instruction was adhered to most closely, Christian life remained purest. We have only to think of the Waldenese, the uh, Abigenses, and the Hussites, and the Lollards to prove this. It is to the last mention that can be traced the earliest of catechisms as we know them today. With the dawn of the glorious Reformation, catechetical instruction came back into its own in the Christian church, bringing with it a further development in the science of catechetics, and especially constructing the catechism as we know it today. It's not surprising that Martin Luther, to whom, humanly speaking, the Reformation owes its very beginning, should be regarded the father of modern catechetics. His claim to this honor is substantiated not only by the catechism which he himself prepared, but also by the writings in which he explained catechetics and gave an impulse to their pursuit. Calvin, who also clearly systematized the Reformation teaching, took a similar view of the duty of the church to instruct the young and the ignorant by interlocutory methods, and he published a catechism shortly after Luther's appeared. In the latter half of the 16th and first half of the 17th centuries, catechizing occupied a most important place in the Reformed Church and perhaps nowhere more than in Scotland and England. It may be said without exaggeration of the catechisms framed on the system of the doctrinal Puritans and published in England between the years 1600 and 1645 that their name is Legion. Writing in 1656, Richard Baxter could say how many scores, if not hundreds, of catechisms are written in England. But the Reformers and Puritans did not stop at the compilation of catechisms. They enforced the practice of catechizing. It's obvious that they were thoroughly in earnest about this matter, as can be seen by the enactments of the church at that time. In England, a canon of 1603, which has never been repealed, required that, and I quote, every person, vicar, or curate upon every Sunday or holy day before evening prayer shall for half an hour and more examine and instruct the youth and ignorant persons of his parish in the Ten Commandments, the Articles of of the Belief, and in the Lord's Prayer, and shall diligently hear, instruct, and teach them the catechism set forth in the Book of Common Prayer. The General Assembly of the Church of Scotland in the first year of its existence provided that while there should be two public services on every Lord's Day, the first service should consist of worship and preaching, and the second should be given to worship and the catechizing of the young and ignorant. In 1639, this was carried a step further by an act declaring that, quote, every minister, beside his pains on the Lord's Day, have weekly catechizing of some part of the parish. To ensure that the weekly catechizing be carried out, the assembly later obtained, ordained every presbytery, quote, to take trial, bring charges, 
of all ministers within their bounds, whether they be careful to keep weekly diets of catechizing, and if they shall find any of their number negligent therein, they shall be admonished for the first fault, and if after such admonition they do not amend, the presbytery for the same fault shall rebuke them sharply, and if after such rebuke they do not yet amend, they shall be suspended." The history of catechizing from the beginning of the 18th century to the present time is mainly a story of decline. It is true that in Scotland and especially in the Highlands, catechizing continued to occupy a vital place in the instruction of young and old, but as it already happened in England, it was becoming more and more a rote acquaintance with the catechism. Isaac Watts had taken up the question with great enthusiasm and exposed the folly of blind memorizing. I want to pause here and just say this is important. We're going to be memorizing, and that's a good thing, but we're not going to just be memorizing. Just memorizing, just parroting words is not enough. The idea is for us to be instructed, for us to embrace, to know, not just have a superficial knowledge, but to have an actual understanding. So Isaac Watts wrote a short work on catechisms for, young ch for children and compiled two catechisms for younger children as well as explanatory notes to the shorter catechism. Among the leaders of the evangelical awakening, John Wes Wesley, more than any, seemed to value the use of catechetical method of instruction. It was in Wesley's later days that the modern Sunday school movement began, and although the basic principles continued... Yet in the second half of the 19th century, the effects of new antipathy to dogmas, doctrine, creeds, and catechism virtually put catechizing out of the church. Today we are reaping the results of that false approach to the Christian life. Ignorance and unbelief are rampant in our land. The church is without an authoritative message, and often even evangelical Christians are weak, and unstable. Is there not cause to ask whether the time has not come to revive the art and practice of catechizing? And I think I'll stop there for tonight, and um, that's a good introduction to the, the background of this, and next time we'll begin to look at the question of the need for catechizing. Any questions about what I'm proposing here. Well, good. Let's get excited about it. It's hard work, but it's going to be good for you. Okay? Just like you tell your children. Um, I know it's hard, but it's good for you. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for those who've gone before us, those who've labored, those who have been diligent to pass the faith along in a faithful way so that it came to us. Help us not to drop the baton. Help us to be diligent and faithful and careful in our knowing and understanding the teaching of your word. Help us to inculcate that in ourselves and then in our children and our children's children. Bless us as a church as we undertake this endeavor. Uh, give us encouragement, diligence, uh, success. Help us to help each other in this to be patient and gracious, but resolved. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.